You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show... 2023 will be a year of worker rebellion and power. On the Heartland Labor Forum, labor radio programmers and podcasters from around the country, from Kansas City and from as far away as England, get out their union-made crystal balls and tell us what 2023 will bring for those who work and for the labor movement. Then... From the Green and Red podcast. Southwest got a $7 billion bailout. They gave their CEO a raise because he worked so hard and done so well of $9.1 million that year. Uh, frontline workers uh, were working 16 hour shifts and um, they spent zero dollars on updating their computer system. Hosts Bob and Scott discuss America's failing infrastructure and how the Southwest Airlines meltdown is a metaphor for our times. From Labor Radio on KBU FM. It's complicated in academia. In academic work, your personal work, so-called for your PhD or your postdoc, is often has this sort of wide, fuzzy, gray area between that and your paid work for the boss. And figuring out how to navigate that is really tricky. Two UAW local 2865 stewards, Sin Huang and Keith Brower Brown, lay out the power and complexities of the recent five-week strike by 48,000 academic workers at the 10 University of California campuses. ILO Voices, a brand new network member, brings us a discussion on labor migration and diverse gender identities. They're also trying to, I guess, put themselves in a position where they can explore who they are. Um, and sometimes it's easier to do that when you know, you're not surrounded by your own family or, or, or people who've known you for your, your whole life but to that point. And we wrap up our first show of the year with this from the Grit Nation podcast. In the fire service, we know many, many people that, that have a 20, 25, 30-year career, and then within a couple years of retirement, they pass away for one reason or another. And who wants to do that, right? Dan Kerrigan talks to Joe about how to maximize your output on the job, no matter what your trade. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. On tonight's show, we're going to have Heartland Labor Forum labor radio programmers and podcasters from around the country 
from KC and from as far away as England who will get out their union-made crystal balls and tell us what 2023 will bring for those who work and for the labor movement. And now for the show. When I look into my crystal ball for 2023, I see the Labor Radio Podcast Network continuing to grow. I see shows sharing guests from the front lines of the ongoing struggles for workplace justice, rank-and-file union members and workers, as well as leaders from across the country and around the world. Audio solidarity makes us all stronger and more effective. 2023 will be a year of worker rebellion and power. Hundreds of thousands of workers will be going on strike, and many of these workers will come to the conclusion that their struggle is directly connected to the struggle of other workers and communities. I think we're going to see an increase in organizing as more people see the value of being in a union. I see cataclysmic events coming in the near term. The crash will awaken the sleeping lion of the American people to unify labor, overcome the synthetic distractions and divisions of the ruling class, and fight Wall Street finance oligarchs. We're also probably going to hear about wildcat strikes and maybe even general strikes. As Big Bill Haywood would say, all we got to do is put our hands in our pockets and we've got them licked. I think that the National Labor Relations Board will revive the Joy Silk Doctrine, an NLRB case from 1949, which said that if the union has majority support through signed authorization cards, the employer was required to recognize the union. Immigration is one of many areas in which the right-wing Supreme Court will bring an anti-worker stance. Working people are fed up, and they're willing to stand together in order to make big changes in their workplaces and in their communities. Probably the most talked about is the UPS contract. It's the largest involving 340,000 Teamsters who are itching for a fight. AI will affect labor in 2023 and subsequent years. I see a labor movement continuing to gain momentum. A labor-friendly NLRB will continue to put workers ahead of corporate interests. High-tech has the ability to make work safer, but can also be used for worker surveillance increasing stress. I see the unmistakable rise in a consciousness of good citizenship across all segments of our population. The wave of strike action that grew up during the fall of 2022 will continue and grow. The current situation cannot hold. Something just has to give over the next 12 months. Solidarity, greetings and good luck for 2023 from this side of the pond. I hope it will be, in the words of Howard Zinn, an endless succession of surprises moving zigzag toward a more decent society. So everybody, strap on your ergonomic seatbelt. Remember that the uncertainty of history leads us to optimism and get ready to sing Solidarity Forever. And that's it for our Crystal Ball show. Be sure to keep listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. We might even tell you if any of these things come to pass. A peek into Labor's Crystal Ball for 2023, a special program of predictions for the year ahead 
from our colleagues at the Heartland Labor Forum, including contributions from producers at that show, as well as other shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. This is Chris Garlock. Steve Zeltzer. Pat Diakovich. Seven Pap. I'm Stephen Hill. This is Mark Galis. My name is Bennett Nowatney. Harold Phillips. Hey, this is Judy Ansel. I'm Judy Morgan. I'm Tom Gibkin. This is Mary Ario. I'm Michael Savoie. Simon Sapper. This is Saul Schneiderman. You can hear all the predictions on this week's Heartland Labor Forum, which airs Thursdays at 6 p.m. and Fridays at 5 a.m. Central Time on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio, kkfi.org. You, the nine to fiver, just making your way home. To you, the all night driver, out in your cab alone. To you, waiting for lunch break, as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up, it's Labor Radio. Good evening, and welcome to Labor Radio. Of the working class, by the working class, for the working class. I'm Laura Wadlin, here with my co-host, Jamie Partridge. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Laura. Our guests tonight are Sin Huang and Keith Brower-Brown, who, as we speak, are on strike against the University of California. Sin is a tutor at UC Berkeley and a department steward in UAW 2865. Keith is a researcher at UC Berkeley and a department steward and international convention delegate in UAW 2865. Welcome, Sin and Keith. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Beginning November 16th, 48,000 postdoctoral and academic researchers, academic student researchers, and graduate teaching assistants at the 10 University of California campuses went on strike. This job action is the largest of any in the United States in 2022 and the largest ever of academic workers. The University of California is the largest employer in the state, a state with the largest economy in the country. The product these workers turn out is not only an educated workforce from around the world, but scientific research that is turned into profitable products by private industry. The strike has created a crisis as finals and grading are interrupted, as well as research projects put on hold. Tell us more about the organizing that led up to this militant and unified job action, and how involved are rank-and-file workers in the planning and direction of the strike? Yeah, so this is a complex question. We have a large and complex union, and our, our, you know, you'll hear all sides saying that the strike has been years in the making, and that's definitely true, without <laughs> delving into like the entire history of our local. I think some notable points are that like in the mid-2010s, the current leadership, or the majority uh, of them, took power in our union, and these are people who are really to take a very you know organizing first approach, and to that extent, they should totally be applauded. They're very serious organizers. You know, They do their one-on-ones and want to inspire you know broad militant work action, but I think we'd also be remiss to, to fail to mention like, you know, experiences and struggles like the, the 2020 Wildcat strike where they consolidated um, so much wisdom throughout that process. I think a lot of, uh, especially in terms of like the no camp and this contract ratification um, debacle, I think a lot of the leadership is coming from people on their campus because, you know, the, the, the leaders on that campus really proved themselves in that struggle in, uh, in 2020. They know the talking points. They've seen these situations before. And so they've been really um, um, great people to confide in and read the situation really well. I'll just add to that a little bit more, if it's okay, about the 
sort of official uh, union leadership led campaign for strike prep and uh, organizing during the strike, which I think is an important context. So um, like Sam mentioned, there's this real commitment to like the mechanics of like efficient, broad organizing um, of reaching like a huge number of members and getting them mobilized into action. And what that looks like, I think many of us were a bit concerned at the time that there wasn't enough conversation happening around uh, what actually stopping work and staying stopped on work for the long haul might look like, because it's complicated in academia and academic work, your personal work, so-called for your PhD or your postdoc is often has this sort of wide fuzzy gray area between that and your paid work for the boss and figuring out how to navigate that is really tricky. And there were great conversations around that that happened in many, many departments and labs. Um, but there was a, a line from the majority of the leadership that uh, many of us thought was kind of maximalist, which was just all work must stop everything, like stop writing your dissertation, stop any uh, work on experiments, even if it's you know 95% your work, um, even if it damages things long-term. Uh, and of course, like I think all of us, especially you know the more militant and dissident wing of the union really wants as much strike power as possible. But we knew that to get the kind of broad work stoppage that we needed to hit the UC management, we needed to bring over people who were, you know, wavering on whether they were going to stop work at all, if they were just going to show up at the picket line, say hi, and then go into their lab. So we needed to find a way to where people could stop, you know, an overwhelming amount of their work, hurt the boss, um, but still feel like they were safe from having their visa revoked for not doing their personal work or getting failed for their academic credit for the semester. Um, and so that was a one of the more heated debates in the lead up to the strike. Then during the strike, the focus of organizing was really heavily on picket line turnout, on getting as many bodies as possible on picket lines, which were soft picket lines, essentially sort of rallies at the entrances to campus. Uh, and then there were, um, you know, major rallies and eventually escalations towards more sort of direct actions against the regents and chancellors. Uh, but the alternative sort of vision that Sin was describing from Santa Cruz and much of the uh, current no voting wing of the union was we should be more focused on work stoppage. This is how we're actually hitting the UC. It's not just through publicity or big rallies or even civil disobedience. It's we got to, our, our main weapon is withholding our labor and we've got to organize 90% of this union to withhold 90% of the labor if we're going to get what we need from the UC. Welcome to this edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I am Jackie Pichit-Pongate. Every migrant worker has a story to tell, the motivations to leave home and seek work overseas, the challenges they face, and their hopes and fears for the future. Yet, despite a raft of research on migration, little is known about one important group, migrant workers with diverse sexual orientation, Gender Identity and Expression, or SOGI for short. With me today to discuss this is Emily Dwyer. Emily is a trans woman, co-founder of Australian NGO, The Edge Effect, and the lead author of a new report entitled A Very Beautiful But Heavy Jacket, The Experiences of Migrant Workers with Diverse Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity and Expression 
in Southeast Asia. Emily, welcome to the Future of Work podcast. Thank you very much, Jackie. It's wonderful to be here and to share what we found um, with people um, doing work in this area in Southeast Asia and, and around the world. The report has a very interesting title. How did that come about? The title of the report, a very beautiful but, but heavy jacket, it's a quote which actually comes from one of the migrant workers, um, a man uh, from Vietnam, uh, who used this to to describe the, the weight that he carries around, being a person with, with diverse soji. I mean, it's something that is really, it's a deep part of, of his existence, uh, of who he is as a person, um, to be a person with, with diverse soji, in, in this case, a, a bisexual man from Vietnam. Um, so it's it's something which is which is beautiful, which is part of, of who he is, but it's also something that he feels a need to hide when he's working as a migrant worker because he's concerned about uh, whether he'll experience discrimination from other migrant workers, whether he'll experience discrimination from employers, whether his contract will be terminated and he'll forced to all of a sudden go home. Um, whether he might experience violence um, or other forms of harassment a- a- along the way. What motivates those with diverse soji to seek work in other countries? Well, to some extent, it's the same thing that drives anyone else to be a, to be a migrant worker. I think, and seventy two percent of the migrant workers that that we um, talked with for this uh, report said that they they migrated for for economic advancement. So they're they're looking for economic opportunities that they don't have um, in in their countries of origin. Um, and but I think you need to sort of take a step back and unpack that and say, well, well, why don't they have the economic opportunities that that they hope for in their countries of origin? And LGBTQ people, people with diverse soji, face lots and lots of discrimination and, and, and challenges in in all, in all aspects of their life. So it might be very difficult to get a job as an LGBTI person or a person with diverse soji. You might not have the same opportunities for for advancement in, in, the, in the workplace as, as people who are, who are not people with diverse soji or who are, who are not um, LGBTI. But they're also trying to, I guess, put themselves in a position where they can explore who they are. Um, and sometimes it's easier to do that when you know, you're not surrounded by your own family or, or, or people who've known you for your, your whole life that, to that point. So what challenges do workers with diverse soji face when they migrate? Yeah, quite a, quite a, quite a few, Jackie. Um, so it starts back in the country of origin. So um, they might um, not feel that they can um, go to the kinds of support services that exist in countries of origin where people can get information about the country of destination, where they can get information about being a migrant worker. Uh, they might not feel that they can that they can go to those government services or um, uh, civil society services and say, well, I'm an LGBTIQ person, or I'm a person with diverse soji, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm a trans person. You know, I'm going to this country, what should I expect? Are there going to be services there? Um, am I going to be able to get help if something goes wrong? Um, is there discrimination? Some people have more or less trouble crossing crossing borders. So some people with diverse soji are a little more visible than others. Um, so, for example, a trans person um, who's sort of who's, who's already transitioned into their own uh, gender um, might um, look different to what their identity documents say. Because in, in lots of countries, as a as a trans woman, your identity documents will still say you're a man. Or if you're a trans man, 
your identity documents will still say you're a woman. So when you cross borders, this can cause lots of problems. Um, sometimes lesbians or gay people or, or others um, uh, will have a gender expression that is also obvious as well, and so they'll get targeted maybe for a bit of discrimination or harassment. There was one, a couple of horrible stories where people were subject to sexual abuse by border officials, um, you know, uh, and only just escaped from some really horrible situations. It's been great talking to you. Join us again soon for another edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I am Jackie Pichit from Gate. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Grid Nation. I'm Joe Cadwell, the host of the show. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Kerrigan, the author of Functional Firefighter Fitness. Though written for firefighters, this book is packed full of solid advice to help you maximize your output on the job, no matter what your trade is. Dan Kerrigan, welcome to Grit Nation. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Dan, for taking your time to be on the show today to talk to my listeners about fitness and the importance of having fitness in order to do the... So I've got to ask the question, Dan, why isn't... I work hard. I'm going to hear a lot of people saying right now, listening, I work hard. Why isn't my hard work enough to keep me physically fit? Why do I need to push a little bit beyond that and and consider conditioning myself? So we need to make sure that we are taking care of our bodies so that our bodies can perform at their best when we're asking them to do the most. And I want to make it clear, and I'm sure we'll talk about the pillars, but we are not two people that just talk about going to the gym and working out, right? It's a very, it's a small part of a bigger picture. It's a comprehensive approach, right? So there's a lot more to it. It's what we eat. It's how we live our life. It's our rest, our recovery, our sleep habits, uh, how well we hydrate ourselves. All of those things come into play. Um, and, and they can easily be easily be applied, um, to pretty much life in general, right? Uh, and certainly what you do, what I do, Maybe there's a little bit more of an impact because it's a physical job. In the fire service, we know many, many people that that have a 20, 25, 30-year career, and then within a couple of years of retirement, they pass away for one reason or another. And who wants to do that, right? Who don't you want to like, you know, get all that all that money you put into your pension all back the benefits. out of it, right? Sure, right? I mean, you you earned it, you deserve it, and. The only way you're going to ensure or really, you know, help help yourself to to achieve that longevity is if if you take care of yourself now. You know, I mean, we can't predict everything, certainly, uh, but I think that uh, logic would tell you that that those of us that do take care of ourselves physically and 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 otherwise are going to have a better opportunity to enjoy a a longer retirement as well. So if we built a solid foundation, now we talk about the four pillars, Dan, and that that you know, getting into your book, you have four pillars there. The first one, first pillar is the, the physical fitness side of it. The second one is the recovery and rest. Hydration is your third pillar. We'll get into that one. That's interesting to me. And then the nutrition and lifestyle choices. So let's go back to the, to the first pillar of physical fitness. And when we think about fitness, again, it's not just about having that ripped bod, but actually having muscles that can do the work required and having a cardio uh, vascular endurance to help you do the work. So how do you, how do you gain that? First, I, I just want to reiterate your point and make it known to everybody that may listen is that what we're, is what we're not about, right? What, what Jim and I are not about is, uh, the beach body, the shredded abs and, and those sorts of physique type goals that, 
that individuals may have. Now, we're not saying that you shouldn't have those personal goals, but our approach is strictly performance-based. It's being the best you can be in every area of physical performance when we're talking about physical fitness. So, so really, um, it's all about function, right? It's about what do you do and what can make you better at what you do in your own life, right? So if you think about uh, a gymnast or a football player or a hockey player or, or a soccer player, they all train physically for the occupation. Essentially, that's what it is for not for the occupation that they're involved in. And, and they do certain things, certain ways to be better at what they do. Right. Well, why shouldn't we? Right. That was our point right from the beginning is that we ought to be training to be better firefighters. And in order to do that, we need to incorporate or replicate those movements and things that we do out there on the fire ground. And that's really what ba- what the basis of functional fitness is. If you if you can answer three questions, is it safe? Is it effective? And is it functional? If you can answer yes to those three questions, then you're probably on the right track already. Right. But what our goal is to get you in a position where you're replicating the kinds of movements and, and patterns that you do on the fire ground and do that in the gym. My guest today has been Dan Kerrigan, author of Functional Firefighter Fitness. Get more information about how you can take care of your most valuable asset yourself. Be sure to visit the show notes for this episode or visit our website at www.gritnationpodcast.com. That's gritnationpodcast.com. Till next time, this is Joe Cadwell reminding you to work safe, work smart, and stay union strong. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1916. That was the day of the Youngstown Massacre. It was World War I, and the demand for steel in war production had skyrocketed. Steelworkers at Republic Steel went on strike in late December of 1915 to to demand a wage hike and overtime pay. They also wanted a decrease in the work week to 48 hours and improved safety conditions. Workers at the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company soon followed. The number of striking workers grew to well over 13,000. It was on this day that some 6,000 strikers, their wives and children gathered at the bridge across from the gate at the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company, intent on stopping scabs from entering the plant. Guards at the mill left company property to confront the strikers at the bridge and began attacking them with tear gas and live ammunition. The upheaval would soon spread to the business district of East Youngstown. By the time the dust settled the next morning, several blocks of businesses were destroyed. While at least three strikers lay dead, another 30 were seriously injured at the hands of the company hired guns. National Guard troops were called in to quell the disturbances. A grand jury convened to determine the cause of the disorder. They ruled that over 100 companies were in violation of the state's Valentine Antitrust Act and conspired to keep wages down in the steel industry. They held the actions of the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company primarily responsible for the death and destruction that reigned over the city. The strikers won an immediate 10% wage increase and better company housing. But the courts dismissed the grand jury's findings. It would be decades before the industry was finally able to unionize. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor History in 2.
That's it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. And Happy New Year.